God came down. Let's pray. Open your Bibles first. Get it to Luke chapter 2 today. Luke chapter 2. We're going to conclude, not our series, our series really concludes next uh, Saturday as we uh, look at uh, the passage, uh, one more passage on Christmas Eve. But we're going to conclude our studies in Luke today. We've been in that chapter several weeks. We've been tracking through the Christmas story. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Pastor Dale. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Seacoast. I'd love to just uh, welcome you personally. I'd love to meet you in the plaza afterwards. If, if you have a little bit of time, uh, coffee, donuts are on me, okay? Let's pray together as we open God's Word. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the revelation that we'll study today. Thank you for the uh, pronouncement that we're going to hear today. And thank you for how, Father, as we listen to it, you direct us to the most important things about this, uh, this special time of the year and what it really means when God came down. So thank you for your gift. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom in it. And I pray, Father, you would teach me even as I seek to teach it. Uh, we love you. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. Welcome to Seacoast. You know, one thing about Christmas is I love the kids. I mean, I love getting the kids in here. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and they didn't they nail it? I mean, they really did, right? I mean, they got two rounds of applause. Did you notice that? Ryan, have you ever done a sermon where you got a double round of applause? Okay, I haven't, okay? But those kids nailed it. But a lot of times, too, I kind of love the fact that sometimes kids kind of enhance the story and add a little more color to it. Sometimes they don't get it all right. For example, I read a survey recently of kids ranging in age from about age four to nine, and they ask them a series of questions. Let me just give you some highlights of what these kids had to say. First of all, they asked them about the, who's the angel Gabriel? Remember Gabriel? Showed up a couple times in the story. Uh, one kid said this, age six. He says, uh, Gabriel is a big white fairy. Uh, he helped Mary and Joseph take care of the baby because he was the doctor. Um, another one said, no, 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 he was a herald angel, which pretty good. That's not bad for a little kid. He was a herald angel. He was a boy angel, but he always gets played by a girl in the Christmas show. <laughs> that was written by one boy that felt like equal rights don't cut both ways. <laughs> How about the animals at the manger? That's always interesting. What animals were in the stable? Here's one kid, age seven, said this. Well, there was a donkey, a sheep, a lamb, and a cat. Um, you're going to see a pattern here. Cats are showing up today. Here we go. Uh, another kid, age six, six, said this. So there were two oxen, a donkey, three camels, three birds who were all white, and three cats who were all black. I'm not sure the symbolism here of the black cats, okay, but they're creeping into the Christmas story. But I like Matthew, age six. He said there was a sheep, there were horses, and there was a crocodile outside the stable. <laughs> I don't know if a kid grew up in Florida maybe or somewhere. But, you know, maybe that's the symbol of the evil one lurking around. Anyway, he's got a crock outside the stable. How about the parents? Who were the parents of Jesus? Charlie, age four, said, well, Jesus' and, mommy and daddy was Mary and Jovis. No, no, Mary and Jovis? Anyway, here we go. But I like, I like this one. Who were the Ansel, age six, said this. Jesus' parents were two gods. Again, a little confused, right? A little confused. Um, how about why celebrate Christmas? Uh, Alicia, age nine, said this. I don't really celebrate Christmas because I'm not a Christian. 
I believe in unicorns and pixies. It's kind of sad. Ben said this. Well, we celebrate Christmas because Santa brings, Santa comes and brings us lots of presents. Now that's pretty honest. But the most important question they asked the kids, and they had had varying results here, was, but who was Jesus? And they gave these answers. J, age five, says, well, Jesus was a king. Not bad. Jesus was a king. He wore a crown even though he was a baby, so it had to be a really small crown. (laughs) Zoe, age six, adds this. Jesus is really old. His birthday was Christmas Day 2007, (laughs) which for Zoe put him in ancient times. Yeah. Sarah, age seven, said, Jesus is a mystery. Antonio, age seven, nailed it. Said, Jesus is Mary and God's little boy. Mary and God's little boy. A mystery. You see, when you look at the Christmas story, you can get a lot of details wrong, and it's not really going to matter. If you want to throw a crocodile in the stable, who knows? Maybe it was there. We don't have a complete authoritative list of all the animals. So if you want to throw a croc into the story, or you want to change this or that, or you add an angel here and there, you're probably not going to miss anything really important. But today, we're going to ask that most central question. Of who is this Jesus? Who is this baby? Who really is this baby? Because we're going to look at a story that's going to fast forward in time about eight days beyond the birth of Jesus. It's a story that I'm not sure perhaps you've never heard. Maybe you've never heard a sermon directly on this part of the story. The story that often gets overlooked in our Christmas traditions. It's the story of Joseph and Mary eight days later. Now, to put that in our cultural context, you know, we know that December 25th isn't the exact day Jesus was born, but let's pretend if it was, this is eight days later. So now you're talking about January 2nd, January 3rd, right? So now, guess what? The tree is gone. The gifts have been cleaned up and put away. Uh, In fact, you've even gone through New Year's and celebrated your bowl games and the victories or losses of your favorite college football teams. The NFL playoffs are launching into full gear, and it's time to move on. So fast forward, and even in our culture, you're talking eight days after all all the hoopla and celebration of Christmas is over. And in one sense, I kind of think that kind of sets the context of the story. It may seem like just eight days, but Joseph and Mary now have moved out of the stable and they're moving into a house most likely and, 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 and they've left behind. Uh, there's been no angels showing up for the last eight days. There's no more stars. There's no more uh, appearances of bright lights and no shepherds showing up talking about what they were just told by God. It's been eight days of taking care of this little baby 
that came out of the womb like every other child in history. We know that it says in Scripture that Mary pondered these things when she heard earlier who this baby was. She treasured them in her heart. She believed, but yet now, eight days later, guess what the baby Jesus has been doing for eight days? Jesus has been doing this. And we don't have it recorded in Scripture, but trust me, He's been doing three things. Answer? Eating. He's been eating. He's been at Mary's breast like every newborn baby. He's been sleeping. Because babies eat and they sleep. And thirdly, he's been... Anybody want to say it? Dirtying his swaddling clothes. Yeah. They've been changing this kid's diapers. They've been changing this kid's claws now for eight days. And guess what? Jesus, as far as we can tell, he didn't come out of the womb talking perfect Arabic. He didn't come out of the womb suddenly as this miracle child. After all, he's the Son of God, born of a virgin. He didn't come out of the womb saying, hey, guess what? Mary, I'm hungry. No, you know, can, you know, it's time for me to nurse. He didn't come out talking Arabic to his parents. He came out like every other baby. God, yes, but God in human flesh, very much looking, acting like every other kid. So now you fast forward eight days. And now, the, maybe the parents, and this is my speculation, but I want to show you in the text, there's indicators that they may have been beginning to wonder, who is this baby, really? Because the angels are gone. So let's listen to the story Listen to what happened eight days later in the, what we would call, it's New Year's. No more Christmas decorations are up. Stable is left behind. And these parents now practice the tradition of every other Jewish family of every newborn baby. It's time to take your baby boy to the temple on the eighth day for dedication and circumcision. See, we don't study this part of the passage. We sure don't sing about it. How many verses of Christmas carols do you know that celebrate the circumcision of Jesus? Answer? None. But we're going to study it today. Listen to the Word of God. Pick it up with me. Verse 21, chapter 2. It says, And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So they followed through on naming him what they were told to name him. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two or two young pigeons. Now, what's the big point here? The big point is Mary and Joseph are doing exactly what the law of the Lord says for every parent to do. At this point, it's take the baby Jesus like you would any other baby and take him to the temple for his dedication and his circumcision. The key phrase repeated three times in these verses is this one, according to the law of the Lord. They're just living out Scripture and doing exactly what God had said. Now, they're doing it on the eighth day. Can I say time out and give you a little bit of medical info? 
It's fascinating to me when God's Word contains little elements of truth that reinforce to us the veracity and, and the reliability that this is not a human book, but a book inspired by God. Because earlier, hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, when the law of the Lord was written, Moses told them to circumcise the child. Every male was to be circumcised as a symbol of the fact that they were a chosen part of Israel. They were chosen by God. They were part of God's chosen people. Circumcision of the male was part of that reminder of every Jewish man that he was different and a part of God's calling. Now, other cultures at the time did circumcision, not every culture. But in the Jewish tradition, it was commanded to do it on the eighth day. Why? You know, it's fascinating that a few years back, I, uh, many years ago, I, actually, I read a little book called None of These Diseases, in which a Christian doctor who had been a skeptic came to faith in Christ, and he went back through his Bible, and, and as a medical scientist, he reread all of the dietary and traditions of the Old Testament law, do this, don't eat this, eat that, and in one of those was circumcision. And what he found was the health benefits, especially in that day and age, when hygiene was not as easy as it is today, that there are serious health benefits actually to circumcision of a male. He also found, by the way, that it was commanded to be done on the eighth day. He said, why? Did God just pick it? Other cultures didn't do it on the eighth day. Here's what they found out. They found out there's two things in your blood that causes it to clot when you are bleeding and to heal up easily and quickly. Prothrombin and vitamin K. Do you know that as you are born, your vitamin K level begins to rise? And guess what? On the eighth day of every child's life, your vitamin K level goes to 125% of normal. And then it immediately begins to drop back down to 100% or normal, and it stays there the rest of your life. In other words, the eighth day of a child's life, for some unknown reason, is the safest day of your life to get cut and to heal quickly and to clot easily. See, God knew that stuff thousands of years ago before any medical science ever uncovered it. It's just one more of many little things in the scriptures that I just call those kind of like the fingerprints of God on this book. So I couldn't help but to bring that out. But so Jesus shows up, they go to Jerusalem, and then they go to the temple and they meet Simeon, an elderly priest, who is characterized, and I've given you an outline to follow if you want to take a few notes, but it'll help you. Simeon, the priest, is characterized by a repetition of one key phrase, and that is that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Holy Spirit. He was a man that was of high character that walked with God. Listen to the passage, and I'll kind of pop some of the key phrases out. Verse 25, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Number one, righteous and devout, a man of extremely high character. He was looking for the consolation of Israel, meaning he was a man that was living with an anticipation that God was going to deliver on his promise to supply the Messiah. And in fact, it says the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was a man that had a reputation that he was, in, that he was filled and that he walked in the power of God's Spirit. He was a spiritual man of great reputation who, who was living with his focus on the fact that he believed by faith that God was going to supply a Messiah. This was a man of high character, highly respected in the community. Verse 26. 
And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, there it is again, that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ or Messiah. And he came in the Spirit, you see the repetition, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took Jesus into his arms and he blessed God and he said... Now, before we go to that, just notice... See, what we have set up now is you've heard, from Abra- you've heard from Gabriel the angel that this Jesus is special. You've heard in a dream, Joseph, that this Jesus is special. These shepherds have talked to a, an angel who said this Jesus is special. The heavenly host lit up the sky saying this Jesus is special. All these wild supernatural events largely communicated by angels. Now, eight days, no angels. Eight days, no revelation. Eight days, no special messages. They go to do something that every family does, the common dedication and circumcision of the child. And at this point, I really believe at eight days in now, they're maybe beginning to wonder, you know something? Man, we heard there was a lot of commotion when he was born. But right now, he's only been doing three things. He's like every other baby. And they hand him to this man, and it's interesting, the text emphasizes this is a guy of high character, righteous, devout, expecting God to supply a Messiah. The Holy Spirit was on him. The Holy Spirit was revealed in things to him. He came in the power of the Spirit into the temple. See the repetition? In other words, this is not Simeon's message. This is the Spirit of God delivering a message for Mary and Joseph and us through this godly man that would have been revered and trusted. This guy is not some wacko around the temple. He's not a weird religious guy standing on the street corner with big signs. This is a respected, godly, elderly priest known for his walk with God. And he delivers a message. So now you've got the reliability of perhaps one of the most trustworthy figures in the temple. And he speaks and he gives this revelation. First about the baby, and then he's going to give a revelation concerning Mary. But let's focus on the baby for most of our content. Begins in verse 29. Now, Lord, he holds the baby Jesus. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. In other words... God, finally, man, I'm an old man. Now I can finally die in peace according to your word or your promise. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence for all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Stop there. See, what did he say? Let me unpack it for you. Number one, it says I can die in peace because I he had been promised He had been anticipating the consolation of Israel. The Messiah would be born. And he said Jesus is exactly that. Secondly, he says salvation has come to your people. And he he labels Christ as the Savior of mankind. He says this, he says, And a revelation, a light to the Gentiles has come. 
So he calls Jesus the ultimate revelation, salvation, consolation. And then finally, he says, not just for the Gentiles, but also for the glory of your people Israel. So Jesus is all of this. This is huge. See, what he's gone from is describing the, 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 the attributes of the baby Jesus to describing who this baby was really going to be or really was already and would grow up and be. And these four phrases are really amazing. Now, look at the, speaking of amazing, the reaction of the parents. So he labels and describes baby Jesus as this, and then he says to the parents, or of the parents, the parents were amazed at these things. Mary and Joseph were amazed at these things. In other words, I wouldn't have expected that. I mean, at this point, good grief. You know, Gabriel is showing up a couple of times. You've got the angels and the shepherds, and you've got the messages. Remember now, the Magi haven't shown up yet. Because at this point, they're packing their bags for that long journey. And they're going to show up probably between the age of the baby Jesus being somewhere maybe between a year and two years old, based on the, that part of the story. But the, but the rest of the confirmations have happened. But, you know, after eight days, it says they were amazed at these things. See, I think they were still trying to figure it out. I would have expected them to say, you know, Simeon, been there, done that, already heard this. You know, thank you for the reminder, but we talked to Gabriel. You know, we kind of heard the angels. But they were amazed. They were amazed at these things. Another indication they were still trying to really, really understand who is this baby really. <clears throat> he blesses the parents. Notice in verse 33. So Simon blessed them. Joseph and Mary. But then he turned to Mary the mother. Interesting that he does this. And he says this to Mary. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Strange. Why is he directed only to Mary? Well, we know from history that Joseph died sometime before Jesus began his public ministry. See, Simeon doesn't understand that, but he knows as God's Spirit directs him, hey, I've got a special word for Mary. Not just for Mary, but for Seacoast in 2016. And that is this. This child, Jesus... Because other than that, it's all good news. Go back one slide. Remember what Jesus is? Jesus is this. I mean, Jesus is there. Can we bring up uh, the previous slide real quick? Remember this? What was Jesus? He's the consolation. He's going to bring comfort and encouragement and consolation and hope and deliverance to Israel. He's the salvation of the world. He's the revelation, the light of the world to the Gentile nations as well. And the glory of your people Israel. Whoa, that's great news, right? And then he turns to Mary. Boom, go to the next slide. And what's he say to Mary? He says to her, he says, look, this child will be the rise and fall of many. He's going to be a sign that will be opposed. And it's like a sword is going to pierce your soul, your heart. He's going to break your heart. 
you're going to grieve. Not everybody's going to believe. And I think it's, it's a warning that as this child grows up, in spite of who he is, don't expect everybody in the world to bow down and worship him. Don't expect everyone to buy into him. He'll be opposed by many. And based on, based on how people respond to Jesus, some will fall. Others will rise. In fact, the word rise in Greek could be translated resurrection. I don't think here it's talking about the direct resurrection, but it's an interesting side note. Think people will rise or fall. Their salvation, their lives will rise and fall based on how they respond to this child. And he's going to have his opposition. So why did God include this episode, this scene in the story, eight days after the stable? See, I, I think that the big idea of the passage in a nutshell is simply this. He's answering the question one more time, who is this baby really? Really? No, those were not dreams that you encounter with those angels. Those were not just uh, flashes in the night that went away and never... This, this is the truth now delivered through Simeon in the temple one more time, not just for Mary, Joseph, but for you and me. The answer to the question is this baby is no normal child. He's the Savior, He's the light, and He's the hope of all mankind. That's the summary. And then on top of that, but don't expect everyone to believe and to bow down and follow Him. It's not going to be true. Jesus is going to be very controversial. Jesus is going to divide families. Jesus is going to divide people. Jesus will be a source of tension and opposition because the message Jesus is going to deliver as an adult is a message that will not be popular in the world in which we live. I'll show you why in just a minute. So how do we apply the story? What's the implications for us? Because if the story is all about who is this baby really, then the question for us, you know, flip it around, is the most important question for us this year is who's your Jesus? Who's your Jesus? When you gather and celebrate Jesus, think about Jesus, who really is your Jesus? Let me just take you back through the words that, that, used, that Simeon used. Number one is this, when God came down is... Is Jesus your Savior? He's the light of the world. He's the Savior of mankind. Is He your Savior? Because this story is teaching that He is the true source of love and forgiveness. It's fascinating because as I thought about these four things that are true about Jesus, I want to mention with, in response to each one something that our culture believes at Christmas that's not true, that's the opposite. For example, what would be the opposite of this? That Jesus really is the Savior of mankind. Well, the cultural belief at Christmas time is we celebrate Christmas to remind one another of the fact that we're really not so bad after all. I see countless TV specials and movies and shows about Christmas. And a common theme is, you know, what I love about Christmas is that people quit fighting, love one another, give gifts, and we're reminded that there really can be peace on earth if we just try a little harder. That's the cultural interpretation of Christmas. Truth of the matter is, God came down at Christmas 
God did the most radical thing you could ever imagine. That God himself would recognize that mankind was so sinful and that because of our sin, we could not fix ourselves. We can't just shape up. And Jesus didn't come to give us some moral lessons on how to be nicer at Christmas. Jesus came because we were spiritually dead without him and we needed a Savior who would die for our sins so that we put our faith in Him and we really can have forgiveness and eternal life. But Jesus had to do the most radical of things because we were in the most radical of fixes. There was no way we could fix ourselves. The culture thinks Christmas shows us how much hope we have in ourselves. I don't think so. Number two, Jesus came down to be our consolation. He's the consolation of Israel. I think in our lives, he's our consolation, meaning he is the real source of comfort and hope whenever you go through tough, tough times. Tough times happen, even at Christmas. This coming week, I'll do a funeral later this week for a man who passed away recently. And it's just, just a reminder, yeah, people die at Christmas. What's the cultural confusion on this one? Well, the cultural confusion is we look at Christmas and treat it like something that just kind of will boost our spirits. That if you're depressed and downtrodden with the rest of your life, at least at Christmas, you're going you're gonna to ha- eat big, you're going to maybe get a few gifts given to you, maybe experience a little love and, 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 and watch a little football and get some time off work. And if you do that, that is good. And we find some consolation some comfort in the Christmas break. If you're a student, at least you don't have to go to class for a week or two. You know, and we try to to use Christmas to kind of be a salve over the pain in our life. But it doesn't work. It's why the two weeks after Christmas are the two weeks, by the way, in the year in which suicide spikes to its high point. It's because people get through with Christmas and once you get a few days after there and the tree is gone and you're just cleaning up the mess and, and you realize, you know something, I had some days off work and I, I got some gifts and people gave me some stuff maybe and, and I ate big and guess what? I got to go back to work and now it's eight days later. It's eight days after Christmas. And now you just got a bill to pay because you rang it up on Visa and MasterCard so you can give bigger gifts. So, see, if you want real hope, comfort, consolation, it's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ that's as true every day of the year as it is at Christmas. Number three, I like this one. God came down and it says he is the revelation, the light to the Gentiles, which includes all of us. John put it this way, the Word came and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The source of truth about God, life, and this world is Jesus. He is the ultimate revelation and proof as to what is really true. And, And the fact is, we often wonder, what is the truth about God? What is the truth about life? How can I really know I'm forgiven? Is there life after death? And, and what's going to happen when I die and I have to meet God? You know, and Jesus came to answer the question. Because unlike other religious leaders and philosophers and people that want to wax eloquent about what they think is coming, only Jesus came down from heaven 
as the Son of God and could speak with authority. And he loved us enough to tell us the truth about God, the truth about our sin, the truth about what he would do to bring forgiveness, the truth about life, the truth about morality. Jesus teaches us all this stuff. You say, well, yeah, but you know, we believe Jesus. Other people believe some other philosopher or leader. I say this, who rose from the dead? What's the cultural misunderstanding? Our culture often thinks that following Jesus is a blind leap of faith or following religion of any type is a blind leap of faith. Here it is. Jesus never told anyone to, you know, turn off your brain and just believe. He never said that. In fact, when people question Jesus and say, how do we know? How do we know you are who you say you are? You're making outlandish claims about yourself. Jesus said this, if you don't believe me, Because of what I say, believe me because of what I do. Believe me because of my words, but also believe me because of the works that I do, the miracles that I do. And in fact, ultimately, believe me because you're going to execute me, bury me, and on the third day, I'm going to rise out of the dead to prove that I am who I say I am. Jesus doesn't want blind faith. He wants faith based on the historical reality that God came down so that we could really know Him. Jesus is the basis of revelation about eternal things in God. So we as Christians are not called to a blind leap of faith. Don't buy into that cultural construct. The faith in a real Jesus that invaded humanity. And last but not least, God came down so that we would all have to either rise or fall and respond to Him. So the question there is, are you willing to follow, even when not easy, this person named Jesus? See, what Simeon was doing that day was he was showing us who this baby really is. Because he knew that if we messed up every other detail of the Christmas story, it wouldn't cost us our soul. But if you miss this one, it can cost you your life now and forever. Who is this baby really? He's the one that grew up to say this in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's Simeon's Jesus. That's the real Jesus. That's the Jesus that we call you, encourage you to place your faith in this Christmas. But not just for Christmas. Not just for the new year, for life. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for the gift of your son. Thank you for the gift of this Jesus, this baby that was so special. So Father, in a world and a culture in which we want to kind of water down who Jesus is or change who he is and make him simply a good idea, make him someone that just shows us how to be more loving, how we should give more gifts. I encourage my friends here today to pause, and if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, the real Jesus, would you say, Lord Jesus, today, as I listen to Dale, I'm moved in my spirit to trust you. I trust you, Jesus. I know you're alive. I invite you into my life to be my salvation, to be my revelation to teach me about the truth of life 
and to be all that I need, my consolation. We love you. We trust you. May the truth about you be the center of our story this year. In Christ's name, amen.